This is Tanakhcast. Welcome back to Tanakhcast. This is episode 6, covering the portion of Genesis chapter 16 to 19. This week's portion spans years in the lives of our protagonists and years, or to be more precise, aging, agedness, getting old, is a central concern despite the bombastic lifespans of the biblical figures we've read so far. Referring to significant events in relation to one's age is not necessarily significant in a time without standard calendars. Chapter 16, for example, concludes with Avram's age at the birth of Ishmael, but chapter 17 reminds us of Avram's age again. He's now 99 when God commands him to get circumcised. And when he does, Avram reminds God that to a hundred-year-old man shall there be children born, or shall ninety-year-old Sarai give birth? This anxiety about fertility and establishing one's patrilineal line, despite divine promises of fertility, prompts Sarai to offer her handmaid Hagar to Avram. Hagar conceives a child, yet begins to regard Sarai as light worth in her eyes, which provokes Sarai to afflict her. Hagar flees the household, but after an encounter with God's messenger, she returns, a bit chastened, to give birth to Ishmael. Chapter 17 begins with God's reaffirmation of the promise to Avram with one caveat. Now the covenant will take physical form in the removal of the foreskin. At eight days, God commands, every male among you shall be circumcised throughout your generations, whether houseborn or bought with money from any foreigner who is not your seed. God also changes Avram's name to Avraham, father of nations, and Sarai to Sarah, before reiterating that she will conceive a child of her own at her advanced age. Avraham laughs, but God is not joking. In fact, Avraham's son will be called Yitzchak, or he laughs, the he being Avraham. God specifies that in a year's time, Yitzchak will be born, and then God departs. Avraham sets out to circumcise himself and his household, and while sitting at the tent opening by the Oaks of Mamre at the beginning of chapter 18, he Quote, lifted up his eyes and saw, here, three men standing over against him. When he saw them, he ran to meet them from the entrance of his tent and bowed to the earth. He invites them to sit, rest, and eat. They agree. And as they sit under the tree, they ask after Sarah and state that, quote, I will return, yes, return to you when the time revives and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. But this time, Sarah laughs. Then, abruptly, God interjects to say, Now why does Sarah laugh and say, Shall I really give birth now that I am old? And Sarah denies laughing. Nice try, but God retorts, You did too. And with that, the meal is over. The men get up to go to Sodom. Avraham, being the exemplar of a good host, accompanies them on their way, and God has a moment of pause. Shall I cover up from Avraham what I am about to do? So God spills it, telling Avraham that he's going to destroy Sodom and Amorah for their wickedness. Chapter 18 recounts that, quote, the men turned from there and went towards Sodom, but Avraham still stood in the presence of Adonai. Avraham then engages in the first and only instance of haggling in the Tanakh. Where are we supposed to haggle? No, 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 I've got to get... What do you mean, no, no, no? I haven't got time. Well, I've give got... it back then. No, 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 I just paid you. What? Yeah. This bloke won't haggle. Won't haggle? unless you count Moshe and Paro's back and forth about letting my people go. So there's a back and forth about how many righteous men would save Sodom from annihilation. All right, I'll give you 19 then. 
No, no, no. Come on, do it properly. What? Haggle properly. This isn't worth 19. You just said it was worth 20. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. Eventually, God agrees that he will not destroy the city for the sake of 10. 10? Are you trying to insult me? Me with a poor dying grandmother? 10? All right, I'll give you 11. Now you're getting it. 11? Did I hear you right? 11? This cost me 12? And so, God goes his way, as does Avraham, and the two men, as chapter 19 recounts, arrive at Sodom at sunset, where they meet Lot sitting at the gate. Lot prevails upon the men to come to his house to spend the night and leave early the next morning. They concur after much cajoling by Lot and retire to Lot's house, but not before, quote, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, encircle the house. They demand the two strangers, but Lot refuses, offering his daughters in their stead. But the mob is steadfast, moving menacingly on the house. The two men blast the assailants with blinding light and then tell Lot and his family a variation of, I need your clothes, your boots, and your motorcycle. <laughs> no, 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 not that one, the other one. Come with me if you want to live. Lot's sons-in-law refuse to leave, but Lot, his wife, and his two daughters head for the hills. Lot says he cannot make it to the hills in time, so there is another bit of haggling, and it's rather quick, and Lot and his family reached Soar when God nukes Sodom and Amorah. And then, quote, Lot's wife gazed behind him, and she became a pillar of salt. The conflagration was so big, so extensive, that Avraham could see the glow from the burning cities from the spot where he haggled with God. Lot took his daughters up into the hills, and the daughters figured they were the only fertile females left on earth and that their father was the last male on earth, so they decide to get their father drunk and sleep with him each in turn and thus become pregnant so that humanity would survive. In so doing, Moab and Ammon were conceived. Like accursed Canaan before them, Moab and Ammon conceived an incest born of sin, would be the tribal fathers of the nations of Moab and Ammon, who will play a part in Israel's drama later on in the Torah. So, there's a lot to talk about this week. In this week's selection, let's get to it. I want to consider two very human emotions this week. Laughter and fear. First, why we laugh. In 2008, Robert Krulwich and Jada Bumrad, host of a fabulous podcast called Radio Lab, pondered this precise question, why do we laugh? And the conclusion they came to about this clumsy yet delightful form of communication is, laughter is a universal phenomena and not just among humans. It is not about joking around. It is a social phenomenon. It is about relationships. When you're alone, according to neuroscientist Robert Cohan, when you take away the social stimuli, you take away the TV or the book or the iPod, when you're by yourself, laughter disappears. And we laugh, ha, 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 the human equivalent of the simian, ah, 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 to indicate that we're just playing. And that's it. There you are. But it still doesn't explain what we laugh about. A 2011 book called Inside Jokes Using Humor to Reverse Engineer the Mind by Matthew Hurley, Daniel Dennett, and Reginald Adams Jr., a cognitive scientist, a philosopher, and a psychologist, respectively. They set out five models in their attempt to unpack what's funny. The authors maintain that humor, which is different than laughter, but most often its cause, has an evolutionary purpose. We sometimes commit too soon to conclusions about the world. Humor rewards us for figuring out when we've made a mistake. 
They present five models which try to explain humor, and please feel free to chime in on the Facebook page why they're wrong with examples of jokes you know that disprove this, but keep in mind that like all models, they're honest attempts at figuring out how stuff works, which, by the way, is an also really good podcast you should check out at the iTunes store. So here it goes. Model one, superiority. We use humor to ridicule other people, to dominate them and feel superior to them. Model two, incongruity and incongruity resolution. We laugh when there is a conflict or incongruity between what we expect and what happens. Or alternatively, we laugh not just because of the incongruity, but because we know that the incongruity can be fixed in a different way. The third model, benign violation, is when we laugh when morals, social codes, linguistic norms, or personal dignities are violated, just as long as the violation is not threatening. The uh, fourth model is rigidity. We laugh at the predictability of human nature. And the last model, model five, is release. We laugh to release sexual or aggressive tension. That one is compliments of Freud. Up to this point in the Tanakh, there is so little expression of positive emotion. I mean, in chapter two, Adam's declaration about the woman, this time she is it, can be read as an expression of excitement. But shall we say the Tanakh is a bit more comfortable in the darker hues of the palette? Adam tells God that when he heard the sound of God walking, he was afraid and hid. Cain, if you recall, became exceedingly upset in chapter four. Noah was enraged with Ham when he said, damn, be Knaan, servant of servants. Avram's persistent petitioning for children could be read as an expression of anxiety. So to have two protagonists laugh in such close proximity to each other and to laugh about the same thing, well, that's pretty remarkable. But why did Avraham and Sarah laugh? They both laughed in response to the same thing, God's certitude that they will conceive a son together. God tells Avraham that he will bless Sarah and give him a son from her. Avraham falls on his face and laughs, thinking to himself, Side effects may include headache, upset stomach, delayed backache, or muscle ache. To avoid long-term injury, seek immediate medical help for an erection lasting more than four hours. If we look back to the five models, we could say that both Avraham and Sarah laughed because of the incongruity between God's statement and their perception of reality. In other words, God's promise of a son came off as a joke, perhaps even a cruel one. Or... We could say that they laugh as a form of release, their laughter masking the aggression they feel against God for telling them that they will conceive a son when they clearly are not physically up for it. Or it could be that they thought that God was telling a joke at their expense to make them feel ridiculed, dominated, and inferior, so they laughed out of nervous defensiveness. As Bertolt Brecht said, he who laughs last has not yet heard the bad news. We'll talk about that next episode. Anywho, let's move on to the other very human emotion, fear. When first learning about the brain and its development over the millennia, I was deeply impressed by the statement that, quote, fear is central in the evolution of the mammalian brain. Think about that for a minute. It's actually fear that's the engine of evolution in our brains. And of all the, of all the possible engines of evolution, of drivers of, of evolution, I suppose fear is as good as any of them, but I always thought that fear was something to be overcome, to be avoided. But fear has upsides. Later, I would discover the same about stress, but that's for another time. From a strictly evolutionary perspective, fear is a growth experience. Mammals who experience fear learn to discern and avoid danger in nature, and in so doing, generally succeed in passing on their fear and caution-filled DNA to their progeny. The fearless human, the one who walks too close to the precipice or climbs too high in the tree or confronts that saber-toothed tiger with bare hands, 
might not manage to pass on those reckless genes to the next generation, which guarantees that over the centuries there will be more humans inclined to caution and species survival than those who want to play chicken with predators. Fear also has a social function. Fear maintains familial and tribal cohesiveness by delineating which humans are safe and unsafe. In an episode of This American Life, Ira Glass had a chat with Jared Diamond about the tribe and tribalism, a word that arguably drips with fear, fear of the other. Jared Diamond spent a lot of time with the indigenous peoples of Papua New Guinea, and he reports that in those traditional very small societies, everybody knew everybody. Thus, all the humans you would see in the course of your day were, they were, they were safe, which by definition meant that if you chanced upon somebody you didn't know, someone who was not immediately safe, that person was unsafe. In other words, strangers evoked immediate fear because that unknown person's presence on your land had to be connected to something bad, some bad reason, some bad purpose. Perhaps this person was here to test your defenses or to steal something valuable. Diamond uh, tells that if you ran into a strange person in the forest and you couldn't run away from them, you would sit down with the stranger. You'd have a long conversation in which each of you named all of your relatives. Jews do this when they meet in public. It's done so often. There's a name for this greeting ritual, Jewish geography. In the New Guinean version, however, you are trying to find some relative in commons, not so you feel less awkward in a social situation, but so you can find a reason not to kill each other. If after two hours you haven't found any relative in common, then you have one of two choices. Start running or start fighting. Ira Glass pressed Jared Diamond on this matter of stranger fear. So is it inherent to the human condition or is this fear of the other in our DNA? Diamond answered in classic Talmudic fashion. It depends. However, the one thing that Diamond identified as being constant across the centuries, cultures and locales, when you have a group, you spend a lot of time trying to figure out who's in the group and who's not, if for no other reason than to weed out individuals who want access to the group's stuff, or what anthropologists would call freeloaders. But as human societies grew bigger into groups of hundreds and then groups of thousands of people, you'd run into a lot of strangers all the time. It was normal. The fear of the other was counterbalanced by this new social norm and all the benefits that it, that it brought. However, where we get into trouble as a species is when the fear of the other is fed by the technology and the capacity to destroy the other. Imagine if that indigenous person in Diamond's example had a handgun. When he confronts the stranger, he knows that if push came to shove, he would prevail. Would he bother trying to suss out a common relative, thus classifying the stranger as safe, or just skip ahead to the fight, which he would win, just to be sure? In other words, would we, who live in a world with strangers, prey upon strangers if we could? This question came up in Greek mythology in the story of Procrustes, the son of Poseidon. Procrustes had a stronghold on the much-used sacred road between Athens and Eleusis, if I pronounced that correctly. Passers-by were often invited to spend the night at the stronghold, specifically in an iron bed Procrustes had made especially for the guests. This iron bed came with a condition. If the stranger was too short for the bed, Procrustes would stretch them with his smith's hammer. If they were too tall, he would whittle them down to fit. However, what they didn't know is that no one ever fit Procrustes' bed perfectly because he had two beds. You bastard! In Jewish mythology, or Midrash, such beds were very common in Sodom. 
The folks in Sodom hated freeloading and they hated freeloaders. They believed everyone should fend for themselves, do for themselves, lift themselves up by their own sandal straps. In other words, they believed corporations are people, my friend. The law in Sodom forbade the giving of any kind of assistance to strangers because the presence of these strangers, these takers and freeloaders, threatened to harm this, this, the economy in Sodom. Rabbinic literature recounts anecdotes of people in Sodom who dared to help newcomers. One woman, some say it was one of Lot's daughters, other tales didn't really identify her, specifically said that this woman gave a stranger some food and water, and for her crime, she was staked down next to a fire anthill and smeared with honey. The ants took care of the rest. In a variation of this story, the girl is hung from the city wall and bees are set upon her. The uh, folks at Stom also regularly employed mitat Stom, the sodomite bed, to torture strangers. Much the same way the Procrustes did. So, sodomy, the sin of Stom, had nothing to do with sex acts, but with inhospitality and cruelty. The sodomites indulged their basest fears and, because they could, abused and tortured vulnerable strangers. So, sorry, Texas. When it comes to your laws against sodomy, you're doing it wrong. But that's okay. Since 2003, the U.S. Supreme Court overturned them, so we're good. Perhaps this is why Lot lingered at the gate at sunset. When Lot saw the two messengers, he arose to meet them and bowed low. Now pray, my lords, pray, turn aside to your servant's house, spend the night, wash your feet starting early so you may go on your way. The two messengers replied, nah, it's okay, we'll spend the night in the square. But Lot pressed them exceedingly hard, so they turned into him and came into his house. He made them a meal with drink and baked flat cakes, and they ate. But within minutes, a mob gathered outside of his house. What they say to Lot was a sort of, sort of the inspiration for Texas legislators. Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us, we want to know them. So, Readers of the Tanakh seeing this phrase, we want to know them, read it to mean what Genesis 4 meant when it employed the, the verb yada, or knew, and they say, But then again, if you go back to Genesis 3, where the verb yada, knew, means what we normally regard knew as meaning, but then Lot makes this following offer. He says, Now pray. I have two daughters who have never known a man. Pray let me bring them out to you, and you may deal with them however seems good in your eyes. Only to these men do nothing. For they have, after all, come under the shadow of my roof. Beam. So there's that verb again, yada, and this time the meaning is clear. If you want to violate anybody, Lot says, you can violate my daughters. <laughs> As a father of daughters, I have to wonder what Lot is thinking at this moment. Is he stalling? Is this his fear talking? Whatever one might think of this sickening offer, it only emphasizes what the sodomites were after, the sin of Sodom. And again, it has nothing to do with homosexuality. As J. Michelson observed in God vs. Gay, The Religious Case for Equality, quote, homosexual rape is the way in which the sodomites violate hospitality, not the essence of their transgression. Reading the story of Sodom as being about homosexuality is like reading the story of an axe murderer as being about an axe. As always, you can leave a comment or question at the Facebook page. That's facebook.com slash Tanakhcast, T-A-N-A-K-H-C-A-S-T. Or you can leave a review at iTunes or drop me a note at thenextjew.com. 
I'll also have some links up for those Radio Lab and This American Life podcasts, as well as more information about the books Inside Jokes. And Jared Diamond's book, The World Until Yesterday, What Can We Learn from Traditional Societies, at the Facebook page, at the blog, and any other surface I can write on with a Sharpie. So, hope you enjoyed this week's episode, and come back next week for episode 7. Y'all come back now. Here.